Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. Last week, members of the Freedom Convoy posted a video on Facebook urging children and parents to honor Orange Shirt Day. It asked children to walk out of class on February 11th. It was meant to be an act of solidarity with those involved in the truckers' protest in Ottawa and on international borders. However, February 11th is not Orange Shirt Day. It is September 30th. That is a national day to commemorate children who were sent to residential schools. The video sparked outrage among Indigenous communities and many Canadians, including those in Alderville. It also caught the attention of Alderville First Nations Chief Dave Mowat. In today's interview, Chief Mowat will address this incident and other aspects of the convoy that have touched the Indigenous community. Some of it you may not even be aware of. I'm so pleased to have with me today Dave Mowat, Chief of the Alderville First Nation. Welcome to Consider This. Thanks, Rob. Nice to be here. For those who may not know, last Thursday, a video was posted by members of the Freedom Convoy on Facebook calling on people to participate in Orange Shirt Day. They urged children to walk out of school on February 11th. What was your reaction upon learning that this was happening? Uh, well, I was offended by it, first off. Um, February, 11th, February 11th has nothing to do with uh, Orange Shirt Day, which is now... Uh, national uh, day for truth and reconciliation um and so i didn't see the reasoning behind it i couldn't see the reasoning behind it i saw it as just co-opting trying to co-opt our people and hijack uh, a very special and important day which occurs on september 30th and as you know rob we had uh, i put out a call for a sea of orange for last year um on September 30th, and we had a real strong outpouring of support from uh, not only within the community, but uh, outside of the community, from our, our allies in Coburg and Camelford and, and the whole surrounding area. So um, when I heard that and saw that, I was uh, uh, offended by that. And then, uh, you know, uh, um, I should say a little uh, 
Now, is there any significance at all for February 11th uh, within the indigenous community? Not that I know of. If anybody knows better than me, uh, please let me know, because I have no idea what February 11th meant. There are a number of First Nations who are expressing their condemnation of this move by protesters. What do you know about the reaction from other communities or others in your community? Well, I've been in touch uh, with other leaders, and uh, um, particularly the, uh, the the Grand Council Chief of the Anishinaabek Nation, uh, Grand Council Chief Reg Nagonabe, and we uh, had some private discussions about this. And uh, here, here's the thing, Rob, is that I believe in uh, in <clears throat> the manifesto that was, I guess you want, might want to call it that, uh, put out by the by whoever these leaders are. Um, they suggested that the liberal government should roll over, and they, whoever they are, uh, a, a committee of they, and the Senate. And the governor general should then uh, take on the leadership of the of the country. In my view, it's insane. But um, um, now, here's the thing: is that our relationship, our historical relationship, with is with the crown, the British crown, and and the federal crown. Our treaties are with the historically with the British crown, and uh, and then post eighteen sixty seven. Our treaties are enshrined in a very important relationship with the federal crown. And so to suggest that some uh, tripartite council should take over the governing of the country uh, suggests that these people have no idea whatsoever about that historical relationship between First Nations people and, and the uh, and Canada. And so our, our, our relationship, again, to reiterate for your for your listeners, our relationship is is uh, an important, historically important, sacred relationship between the crown and between the First Nations, and our treaties hold down that relationship. And this group has no inkling at all of what that means. And so, um, in my view, it's it's just disturbing that they would even consider such a such a thing as what they were putting out. Um, and it's it's a just to be pretty blunt, it's it's uh, not uh, well respected within the First Nation community from the people I've been talking to, and uh, in our own community. Um, not a lot of people are up in arms about it. Um, it just seems to be something that they're observing and watching. I haven't talked to a lot of people. People are just watching it from a distance. And um, uh, I don't believe that there's a great deal of support for um, what's at the core of this this issue uh, related to what they're screaming about. I mean, it started with uh, trucker uh, vaccination and cross-border mandate, uh, et cetera. We all know that. And then it's sort of uh, ballooned into God knows what. And um, I really don't know what their cause is myself. In fact, I just, uh, you know, I read the news, but I, I got other things to worry about other than other, other than this, this issue right now. It, it is catching the... Uh, 
the minds and the imagination and the, uh, uh, the uh, heart and soul of the nation. But uh, uh, the day-to-day here uh, in Alderville certainly doesn't involve that. Has there been any major changes recently uh, around uh, the policies and procedures uh, in the Alderville First Nation? Well, what we did uh, as when this whole thing started in March 2020, I mean, we were grasping just like uh, most leaders in, in the country and around the world, actually. Um, I mean, I've never been involved in, in anything like this. Um, and so we ended up mirroring what the province was putting down insofar as its measures. Um, and we tried to walk in tandem with the province um, and um, there was a uh, basic acceptance of what we were required and asked to do Um, when it comes to the vaccination we ran a number of clinics here and um, historically you know first nations people uh, have been decimated by infectious diseases. Uh, Smallpox is probably one of the most historical um, um, infectious disease sort of catastrophes that hit upon Indigenous peoples in North America. And so it was no surprise to me that there would be a strong uptake of the vaccinations when they came to the community. There was a strong uptake, actually. Uh, we ran our vaccine clinics in conjunction with the uh, uh, health uh, unit, the course of Pine Ridge Halliburton Health Unit, and we uh, offered the vaccination to our members and their immediate households in Northumberland County. Um, and I just I'll give you some rough numbers through um, communication with our health community health nurse, there were upwards of 1,200 plus doses that were administered here in Alderville First Nation. Um, And so it was no real surprise to me that our people would be concerned about getting the vaccine here because historically, um, infectious disease has impacted First Nations people dramatically. And so when it comes to mask wearing, um, it's sort of been a common evolution out of this whole thing um nobody has complained to us in alderville first nation none of our members have been ranting and raving about their freedoms being impacted um we're just sort of uh rolling with the punches if you will and hoping to get out of this um safe and healthy uh i can report that one member of alderville first nation an officer member passed away from covid uh it about three weeks ago, uh, the person passed away in Hamilton and was not vaccinated. Um, but on reserve, we've been safe and uh, we've been healthy. There have been some cases recently with the Omicron variant, uh, but they are all being well managed and um, people are still are, are healthy and safe and they've done what they've had to do as far as isolation. I'd like to go back to uh, something you said earlier that I I think is significant. And I'd like to ask you about cultural appropriation or co-opting. 
And is this an example that we're watching with the Freedom Convoy? Well, I guess, first of all, I just want to qualify by saying that, you know, the media, depending on who one reads and depending on which media outlet one goes to, you're going to obviously, as you would know, um, get their view uh, and get the interpretation of events from whoever you might <clears throat> seek your news from. Uh, and so there's a variety of interpretations and viewpoints that are coming out of this issue. But the first important thing for your listeners is that Ottawa sits on unceded Algonquin Anishinaabek territory. It's unceded. We uh, accept that. We, in the in our communities, we understand that. And so that's the first problematic issue, is that, in my view, and, and I will say the Algonquin Nation, those in Quebec, those in Ontario, did put out a press release and did put out a statement related to this freedom convoy that they had nothing to do with it and they do not support what, what's going on. And so that's the first important thing is that nobody seems to have contacted the Algonquin Nation in Ottawa or in the surrounding area to determine whether or not they should do this or do that on that, on that sacred ground. Uh, I did see some photographs of people uh, sitting around um, a circle, and I don't know who they were. To me, it looked offensive. And then I saw some drumming, which, again, depending on who was taking the video and, and putting it up, it was pretty offensive to me. Um, I've been in enough drum circles to know that whatever they were doing was nothing that we would um, we we would support. And so. In fact, it was almost embarrassing to see some of that stuff, Rob, what I saw. It was almost embarrassing. And they should be embarrassed, these people that are trying to suggest that they have the support of the, of the First Nations. Hey, look, individually, there might be some First Nations people that are, are down there and or, or support this. But on a uh, from a provincial territorial organizational level, PTO level, like the Anishinaabek Nation, uh, we do we do not support it. Um, uh, you know, the Assembly of First Nations on down, nobody has come out and said anything about this in any supportive way. Uh, when I see the co-opting and, and when I see this sort of appropriation, it's it's um, it's offensive. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's been a long haul historically in Canada, um, where we see our cultural attributes and ceremonies starting to be respected in Canadian society, and then to see this in Ottawa, what I've seen is it's embarrassing and it's maddening. It's frustrating, um, and I, I don't want to go on and on about it, but um, I, I have enough experience around the drum and, and, uh, and, you know, pipe ceremonies and, uh, ceremonies in general to know that what I've seen down there is, uh, has been embarrassing. 
Since we are speaking about recognizing children within the Indigenous community and the trauma they face, a month ago, the federal government released details of a $40 billion settlement to compensate Indigenous children harmed by the Canadian child welfare system. Can you tell us about the background? Child and Family Services on Reserve goes back to about the 50s, I guess, when it becomes, uh, when, when Canada and Ontario become formally involved. Um, and... There was always inequities in that relationship and in that any funding formulas that came out through that relationship. And uh, so, by not funding, now I'm not a I'm not a uh, expert on this. So I rely on our child and family services people to inform me on this. So I don't want to suggest that I'm uh, in any way an expert on this. Uh, our staff that work within this field here in Alderville and or PTO level, they have a lot more experience than I do. But I do know that there were always inherent inequities in that relationship and in the funding formulas that came out to uh, allow First Nations to care and put down prevention pro- uh, programs in, in the communities to avoid children from being taken away um, and when we move into the 60s, we uh, come upon a time that's now known as the 60s scoop. And what that was, was uh, children uh, being taken from the communities uh, by uh, children's aid societies, in some cases being adopted out. And, um, and uh, there was no regard for, for the... There was no regard for the in-house, in-home, in-community care and prevention services that should have been provided. And so there was uh, a large number of children that became victims of the welfare uh, of the welfare system and became victims of the children's aid societies. Uh, and so throughout the decades, then there's been this um, back and forth and a tug of war when it comes to uh, administering the proper amount of resources to allow children to stay within their communities. And and so uh, it became uh, the responsibility of the First Nations Caring uh, Society to sort of take this on and, and move it forward. And, and so we did see the Human Rights Tribunal come down with a decision in 2016, and then now we're, we're at a point where we've seen a, a financial package come through. But it's a long history of, of intrusion by by the state in First Nations communities. And uh, again, it, it sort of speaks to the racist, um, the racist uh, viewpoint of government towards First Nations children. Um, and then, you know, out of this process, too, comes the Jordan's principal issue uh, related to uh, uh, first um, Jordan's principles. Basically, the 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 principle is that uh, when a when a child is requiring service, immediate service, that service should be 
supplied, provided by the first uh, department or government department or agency that is that is contacted where your request goes to. And then the argument over who pays for it, that'll come after. Uh, so Jordan's principle is an important component of all this. So it all harks back for two decades of inequity and uh, I'm just going to put it out there, racism. Um, and so now that we're in this period moving forward, we hope that it to be rectified in uh, new funding arrangements and uh, and finally the recognition of what the uh, Human Rights Tribunal put down. Now, it's important in terms of recent history to understand that the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal began in 2016, and it's actually been a 15-year fight. I think if you look back, uh, the federal government has fought this case ever since the very beginning. From your perspective, why do you think they did this? Yeah, well, it's a hard. That's a hard question for me to take on. Um, if you know the history of of uh, First Nations and Crown relations, uh, it's no surprise that the federal government would would take this stance. Um, there's always been an attempt to break down the communities. We go back to uh, back as far as Confederation, and even before before that, there's always been an attempt to um, to assimilate First Nations children, uh, right back to the 1850s in Alderville. In fact, perfect example is the Alderville Industrial School, which was aimed at um, assimilation, which was aimed at um, removing any cultural traits and attributes from the children and separating children from their from the parents by way of religious uh, and agricultural and education uh, instruction and so that's what occurred at Alderville it failed but the the industrial school plan was aimed at that and then of course we move into the residential school issue which separated children and tried to break them down and remove them from from their communities. So it's a long continuum uh, of uh, of this process. It's over a hundred years, decades and decades, generations and generations of removing children from the influence of their communities and from the influence of their parents. And so, in my view, and I'm not an expert on child welfare, but in my view, it's just a continuum of what's happening since the 1850s. The settlement that they have been able to reach is for $40,000 per child. What's your reaction to that settlement? I believe that uh, it's uh, the, the, the ages within or the, the years within that agreement or the years in which that is captured is between 2006 and 2016. Um, I have no idea at this point how that will play out. I, uh, I do not know how that's going to play out, that $40,000 per child. Uh, so I'm not going to speak beyond that. I, uh, I, um, I'll go back. To, I have to actually go back to my, my staff at the Health Services uh, building to see how that's playing out. But um, um, I'm not going to speak much beyond that, how that financial plan will play out.
Can you tell us, though, will there be any impact on the people in the Alderville community? Well, uh, if you're not familiar uh, with it, uh, there is an agency now that is uh, um, in place, DBCFS, which is the Child uh, and Family Services Agency that uh, has authority over the Child and Family Services file uh, uh, throughout a large catchment area in Southern Ontario. Uh, Alderville is within that catchment area. And so that has seen um, processes which allow children to stay in the community and uh, it's uh, allowing there to be a much stronger prevention services process which allows children to remain at home and to be um, um, educated and or trained and or exposed to important um, cultural and historical and communal um, uh, realities in the community um, and so it's um, it, it, it's been a, a, a process that has been a long time in the making uh, but what it, what the DBCFS did is it actually took the role of the uh, historical and um, the long-standing relations that the former uh, children's aid societies once had over our communities. And so that's been a huge step forward insofar as there being a sort of a... Uh, um, an indigenous um, uh, level of control for this whole file. I can remember when I worked in Northwest Ontario um, over 25 years ago when the uh, Wops Among Community Care Initiative took off and that involved the uh, White Dog Independent Nations, the White Dog First Nation uh, in Northwest Ontario because there was a terrible record between children's aid societies and and the, the First Nations in Northwest Ontario. So this whole process of, of their uh, being control taken away from the Children's Aid Societies, it's been a long time in the making. Um, and I, I'm involved in some cases uh, directly with the TBCFS agency and Children's Matters within our community. And it is... Um, I should say, uh, I could say, easily could say it's, it's a huge, been a huge advancement insofar as uh, Chief of Council and the community having direct input in the, um, in the matter of children being able to stay within the community. So that, that's huge uh, when we look back at uh, how so many children at one time were taken from the community. Are you aware of any members of your community being eligible for this settlement? Okay, and I understand the agreement's going to be going into effect on April 1st. Uh, is that an important date for, for you and, and your council? Well, April 1st is the start of uh, the new fiscal year, so it's uh, the only significance is that, is, is that April 1st is always the start of a new fiscal year. While I have you on the phone, I, I, I want to take the opportunity to ask you if uh, you have any news out of council, uh, band council, that you'd be willing to share at this time. Um, 
internally. We uh, our big challenge is uh, enforcement of our bylaws, uh, protecting our environment. There is a huge jurisdictional gap between um, Ontario, Canada, and the First Nation. Uh, so that's always an ongoing issue. Uh, even though we have bylaw making authority under the Indian Act, the enforcement of those bylaws is non-existent. And and so while Canada has set that down in the Indian Act, there's no enforcement mechanism. Um, I'll give you a perfect example of soil importation. The importation of potentially contaminated soil into the First Nation is a, is a huge issue in Alderville First Nation. And I don't mind telling you that it is a frustration when it comes to enforcement of that potential issue, uh, enforcement of that issue in First Nations, like Alderville First Nation. We're close to the GTA, uh, and uh, soil contamination is not just a First Nation issue, it's an issue, provincial issue. Uh, but when you try to enforce that, or when you try to um, seek uh, an enforcement mechanism so that we at the First Nation level and we at the Chief of Council level know that contaminated soil is not coming into the nation, that's a tough uh, process to sort of wade through. So it's a real, it's a real frustration uh, in... in uh, in trying to have our bylaws enforced, we're not talking about bopping our own members on, on the head. We're talking about keeping our community safe. And so we should have the ability to have those enforced. Um, and that's a real frustration. Uh, on the positive side, we are seeking out new lands. Um, by the way, of our 2018 Williams Treaty Settlement Agreement. We will have some. Uh, we we've shared some good news regarding new land acquisitions uh, with our with our membership. And uh, once we take possession of the most recent parcel, we can make that public. But uh, that's positive. Um, internally, there's a lot of challenges, just like any community or any municipality would have uh, on the human resources side. Uh, the uh, Business relations side, um, on the environmental side, um, I can also tell you that the Black Oak Savannah and the Tall Grass Prairie continue to do remarkable work um, in managing and preserving the uh, the site that we we have within the heart of Alderville First Nation, and um, in working with Environment Canada over the last twenty plus years originally through the Habitat Stewardship Program for Species at Risk and now through the Aboriginal Fund for Species at Risk. And amongst uh, a, a host of other funding uh, streams are people at the Black Oak Savannah Tognes Prairie. They do remarkable work in managing the site and um, uh, monitoring uh, species at risk. Um, it's just a host of work that they do, which is just, it's just remarkable. Uh, I can't say enough about that site, and so I look forward to a new season um, coming up this spring and summer, 
over at that site. I'm just I'm on the south sort of flank of the of, of the uh, Black Oaks Nevada Tallgrass Prairie site, so it's very close to my heart. And I've worked alongside people there for for a long, long time. So that's always a positive story. And we need positive stories uh, at this time, Rob, as we see uh, our uh, our our neighbors in municipalities and or what we're seeing in Ottawa play out. We we uh, we need some positive stories. So there's lots going on at the First Nation level internally. Um, we. We have a strong organization. We have our challenges just like any other organization, just like any other community. But uh, we uh, we have a good uh, uh, number of staff in place. We have a high level of professionalism. And we have a strong educational um, program. And so we have a lot of students that are out there doing their thing uh, at the university level. Um, and uh, and so I can you know I can go on and on, but uh, there's there's a lot of challenges, but um, it's it's uh, it's it's good uh, exciting work here in in my role, um, and I learn a lot. I'm still you know I always love to learn. I, I learn a lot from the people around me. I learn a lot from the people that I'm in touch with, either federally or provincially, or just a lot of people. Uh, and, you know, people at large who have genuine concerns for their personal relationship with First Nations issues or the First Nation in general. I get a lot of correspondence from people, you know, you name it, Warkworth, Colburn, Colburn, Peterborough, uh, people of all stripes and colors uh, who correspond with me are in a lot of different issues. Um, and that's always interesting to, to, to see and to hear and to, to read what people feel and believe and, and understand about First Nations communities. Um, there's a lot of uh, information that comes through regarding archaeology in Southern Ontario. Archaeology is one of these things that a lot of people probably don't know a lot about, but it's always happening, it's always occurring. The archaeological assessment process, and that is uh, a serious issue. Also, uh, the, the issue of ministerial zoning orders, MZOs, that's a huge concern for First Nations people. Um, there's been, I believe, over 40 that have been administered now or, or put down um, under the former Liberal government in Ontario. Um, there was maybe two that came out over 15 years. But under this government, there's been over 40. And the MZO process, it um, sort of sidesteps public consultation and, and um, First Nations consultation, uh, all in the name of uh, reinvigorating the economy. Uh, but we are concerned with the fact that uh, the MZOs, in not uh, providing public oversight or First Nations consultation and oversight that this is the uh, um, a sort of a slippery slope that um, in some cases can put the environment at risk. So there's a lot of moving parts um, but a lot of positive learning and um, um, 
it is, Rob. Chief Dave Mowat, I want to thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you very much, Rob. That was Alderville First Nations Chief Dave Mowat. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life and Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more from Consider This.